Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The presenting sponsor of the Audible is Trader Joe's. And hey, today we've got not just Bruce, but USCFootball.com's Ryan Abraham, who is also a Trader Joe's enthusiast. Ryan, have you listened to Inside Trader Joe's yet? I have not. I didn't even know they had a podcast to do, so I'm going to have to check that out. But yes, super fan. I got one right here in Hermosa Beach near my house, and we go to it every week. What is your go-to item there, Ryan? Yeah. Okay, so the... uh, the the peanut butter cups are pretty awesome. The peanut butter cups you can get at the register, I believe, right? Yeah, you can get them around. I love getting like the specialty beers, like little six packs of weird naming, you know, weird sounding beers, like cheap wines. They taste good, but they're not that expensive. And I do a lot of breakfast stuff there, like yogurt and uh, some of the cereals and stuff. Just so you know, guys, Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley and around the world, to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Audible. I am Stuart Mandel, joined as always by my colleague at the All American, Bruce Feldman. How's it going out there in LA? It's good, Stu. I felt like uh, they snuck me in when you were on vacation in Hawaii and hired me out out from uh, out from under your your watch. But just I'm glad. so you know, here's my dedication to both you and the the site. I set an alarm for 3 a.m. Hawaii time just to tweet out the news. Can't you? Aren't there ways you could actually time a tweet like that? So on TweetDeck, you can schedule a tweet, and that was my intention to do that. But then I couldn't figure out, did the TweetDeck think I was on Pacific time or Hawaii time? And if I said it wrong, it was going to go out too early because we had this officially set for 9 a.m. Eastern. So I did it, and, you know, and I went back to sleep. Well, I appreciate your diligence. Thank you. Thank you to all those for the warm welcome there. It was a very, it was a busier first week than I anticipated. There was a couple of stories I ended up doing that I didn't uh, foresee. One we'll get to in a minute. That was uh, kind of a, a very bittersweet thing. But before we do that, Stu, there's a bunch of news that did happen when you were out vacationing in Hawaii. And one of the things that, that happened happened kind of uh, not too far from me. It was a USC-related story. The long, long-awaited Todd McNair versus the NCAA showdown happened. We'll kind of delve into that. So we have Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. His site is the go-to if you're a USC fan or if you want to know what's going on around USC, even if you're not a big USC fan. His site had two reporters covering the McNair trial daily. So, Ryan, should USC do USC fans have a reason to be pissed off? I don't know, Bruce. I think over the years, originally when this came out, I don't think a lot of the national media were like thinking that the NCAA kind of did USC wrong a little bit. I think it's kind of accepted now. I don't know what 
USC would have done had Todd McNair come out victorious in this trial. It would have just made made him a lot of money. I mean, he was looking for $27 million plus. Unfortunately, if you know, we did have Keely Yor and Dan Weber down there every day. The way their his lawyers went about it, they went for just defamation. There were some other claims they could have went after that would have been easier to prove. Proving defamation in a case with a public figure is very difficult. And I think they knew that going in. So it was sort of like they were going for the home run that would have paid the most. And it didn't work out. And it's funny, the presiding juror, Anthony Bruno, is a lawyer himself. He actually went to law school with the NCAA's attorney at Georgetown, which is kind of interesting. I don't think they knew each other. But to let someone like that on the on the, the jury seemed very interesting to me, but also really only going after the defamation case. So it's just seven years coming. You know, they delayed the trial forever, tried to get it dismissed, all this kind of stuff. Five weeks in the courtroom. Crazy. And then it comes out. And it just goes in the NCAA's favor. So it's was, it was kind of an interesting, it's kind of a, a dud at the end, I guess you could say. Ryan, a lot of the people listening right now who are not USC fans either don't even know this trial happened or would be surprised to learn that you did have two reporters covering a five-week trial over something that, like this wasn't Pete Carroll suing somebody. This was the running backs coach who hasn't been the running backs coach in almost a decade from a scandal that you know seems like forever ago. Why has this remained such a hot button issue with you? I mean, this was it as simple as they're so mad at the NCAA they just want somebody to beat them, even if it's a guy who is no longer remotely associated with the school. Yeah, I think so. I think there's still a lot of bitterness about the sanctions themselves. You've seen, you know, what happened. It wasn't this wasn't like a Cam Newton thing where USC was paying to try to get Reggie Bush so they could win a national championship. This was some wannabe agent trying to pay Reggie Bush to leave USC. And, it, you know, something that would happen in San Diego, you know, two hour drive away. The sanctions that they gave USC, I think most people agree were over the top. And I think USC fans are still bitter about that. They were still able to do some good things and, uh, you know, win 10 games a couple of times during the sanctions years and be able to recover pretty well as much, probably as good as any program could. But I think they're bitter about that. And this would just be a little bit of vindication, even though and I think USC fans are mad at USC for not fighting it harder, like a Penn State or Miami or North Carolina, anyone like, you know, a lot of other schools fought the NCAA and got sanctions reduced or didn't get them at all. So I think USC, there's some bitterness all around. And if Todd McNair won, it would just be a little bit of vindication. Ryan, let me ask you this. So just there's a, a secondary story that is kind of I don't know if the timing is coincidental, but the president of the school, Max Nikias, there's a lot of people who want him out and that has come seems like it's coming to a head are these is there any relation to the frustration from the USC fans I know we've talked offline that there's there's some ugly issues that have kind of been around the school for a while that have also come to a head how do you think that's going to play out so I think there's not a lot of relation there's some USC fans that aren't happy with you know the higher ups the presidents and stuff that they weren't supporting the football team as much as maybe some other programs would but this scandal is completely different. You're seeing it now as a national story. You know, they had the the dean of the medical center, you know, doing drugs and, you know, hiring prostitutes and all. I mean, crazy stuff from the dean of the medical center. But he brought in a lot of money. And then now a, a longtime gynecologist at USC, sexual misconduct over decades that was being reported. And he was let go. They didn't report anything to the board and they got a, a cash settlement out of it. So I think there's a lot of moral issues going on with President Max Nikias, but he had a $6 billion fundraising campaign that he succeeded ahead of time, and they added $3 billion on top of it. So he's making a lot of money. He was backed by the Board of Trustees. But as of right now, the students, 
uh, the faculty, a lot of them want him to resign. I think the pressure is going to keep mounting on him. Do you think he's going to end up sur- surviving this? Because like you said, he has brought up a lo- brought in a lot of money. He has brought in a lot of money. I think I read an article today that was kind of comparing it to um, the Michigan State thing where there was support initially, but it was just, it's just going to be piled up too much. I think at some point it's going to be hard to work there. It's going to be hard to raise money going forward with all the pressure on him. I mean, I've met the guy. He seems like a really nice guy, but the things that have been happening around USC, I just don't think he's going to be able to co- overcome it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but I think soon – USC will probably be getting a new president. And I, you know, it does seem like it's, we're still in the early stages of, of finding out just how widespread, I mean, some of the stories about this gynecologist are so gross, like the things he would, that the, these uh, female patients say he would say to them. So it is, like, has a little bit of resemblance to Larry Nasser. Yeah. But one no- notable difference in the way the school is handling it, at least so far, I mean, Michigan State, has tried to, I mean, they just recently announced finally that they're reaching this big settlement, but they tried so hard to deflect any sort of blame. Yeah, it really, it, it came off yeah. really insensitive. It yeah, seems like USC it. is already, like, they've got a hotline open. It's like they're, they're, they're almost like asking people to come forward and help them figure out how far this went. Well, I thought that the the really screwy part, especially in the in the defense of Michigan State as it came up, the Michigan State interim president Engler just went off and tried to make it an, e- an ESPN slash a media problem. And it was like, could you bury your head in the sand anymore by, you know, deflecting in a way that was just kind of such a head scratcher. And it's kind of an embarrassment because that's not helping address the problem at all. I don't, I can't imagine that the USC problems are on that scope, but as you know, as Ryan said, there's a lot of ugliness there that's now coming out that again, this is, I feel like these things, tend to once the jar is open a lot of other stuff just comes flying out and maybe that's where we are getting to with usc bringing this back to the mcnair case this is my read on it i mean i read all of your guys you know the interviews everybody did with the foreman afterward and what it sounds like is it came down to this after all the testimony after all the emails that got leaked and everything it sure seemed like the People are, that were involved with the Committee on Infractions, not necessarily the people on the committee, but the people at the NCA that worked with him, kind of had it out for Todd McNair. And there were many examples of, you know, I think even the jury foreman said it seemed like they were unfair to him and, and that they would have liked to have punished the NCA. But at the end of the day, by the strict letter of the law, it was a defamation case. You have to prove that they were saying things about him that were outwardly false, and there just wasn't the proof. To this, you know, to this day, we don't exactly know what happened on the phone call that supposedly connected Todd McNair to this whole scandal. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, bringing Lloyd Lake, who is the the wannabe agent guy, would have been, you know, maybe that would have been beneficial. But, you know, not having those other claims, dropping those and only going defamation, I think really hurt. But that's what I think maybe it's a little more frustrating for USC fans when you hear the jury foreman say, yeah, we think the NCAA treated, you know, Todd McNair dirty. And we they thought that we wanted to do something to them. But they treated them fairly. They, you know, they followed the letter of the law, the instructions from the judge, and said, "Okay, well, we can't prove that this was." They made this false statement about Todd McNair, so we have to say no. There's like nine questions you have to say yes to. They got the number three, and it was split uh, nine to three, uh, saying no. So our, our Dan Weber was saying, I, he said this a few times, they wish that the committee on infractions and the NCAA treated Todd McNair as fairly as this courtroom in Los Angeles treated the NCAA. They gave him. You know, every benefit of the doubt and, uh, 
you know, Todd McNair's lawyers had to prove something that was really difficult to prove, and they ended up not doing it. So even though the jury wanted to do something, they said, well, they saw this was this wasn't right the way they were treated. And and you know, in retrospect, it's like, well, they wanted to get Todd McNair because otherwise you can't really get USC. No one at USC would know anything. So I think they wanted to get Todd McNair to make sure they got USC. And that's kind of where we are. Hey, just the last thing before I let you go, Ryan, is you think Todd McNair will ever coach in college football again? I think it's going to be tough. He was close a couple. He had a couple of jobs that were he was close to. I think the Arizona Cardinals and I think maybe Temple where he, you know, he was a guy. I, I can't remember the other Temple, one, yeah. but there was some potential there. And then at someone at the top at the end said no. So I think it's going to be difficult. I don't know if this case is going to help him out. He came across very well on the stand, talked about, you know, how he was trying to get jobs. We'll see. It might have to be. High school stuff, maybe picks on the NFL team. I think it's going to be tough for college. Hmm. All right, Ryan, we thank you for joining us and for the insight, as always, and urge you to follow Ryan on Twitter. Your Twitter handle is? Inside Troy. You can follow me there. Yeah, and as well as uh, go to uscfootball.com. His site really is the best thing out there for USC stuff. Thanks for having me on, guys. Back to the podcast in a second, but first, a word about our sponsor, ZipRecruiter, you're in Ryan's office. I know he's constantly hiring people for uscfootball.com. Maybe I can tempt him right now to start using ZipRecruiter. Ryan, Ryan, what do you say? Would you be interested in ZipRecruiter? He's giving me the thumbs up because he he has heard the buzz about what ZipRecruiter does and how it makes companies better. Here's what it does, Ryan. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. And in fact, 80% 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. So, right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, guys. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com T-A-S-B, as in the audible Stu and Bruce. That's ZipRecruiter.com T-A-S-B. Again, you get it free. Try this ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, Stu, um, we appreciate Ryan for joining us, but I wanted to, uh, like I said, a few things, big things happened while you were on vacation. The biggest thing to me was the passing of a real legend in, in college sports, and that was Mike Slive. I ended up writing a column about him a few days, probably my second day at, at The Athletic when it happened. Uh, you were away. I know, like myself, you felt like you had a really strong relationship with him. Tell me what you what, what goes through your mind when, when I mentioned the name Mike Slive and the impact he had on people. I mean, we talked about it that day, how like kind of you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Like I don't think I realized just how fond I was of the guy and, and how much... I valued our relationship until I got this awful news. And I didn't know he, I mean, I knew obviously a few years ago he was treated for cancer. I didn't realize he was sick again. And uh, it just was a shock. And I mean, the, 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 so from my standpoint, the, the reason that I had that relationship was obviously I covered kind of the mechanics of, of both the BCS and then the playoff after it. And, and he was one of my go-tos. And so I spent a lot of time at, hallways of, of hotels where these guys with commissioners would meet both during the BCS era but especially in 2012 when they were meeting every month or two about forming the playoff and it was just it, he, he he treated you with such respect he was both super nice and also I mean you know 
he wasn't really giving away any secrets. Like he was very much uh, a lawyer. You know, he was a lawyer, and he was very, very careful about what he said, and everything was very well thought out. And yet, it was engaging. It was some of the most interesting conversations I've had about the business. But also, just beyond that, he was always asking about your family. Uh, we were both Jewish. We would, you know, how was your high holidays? Just a super classy individual, and, and many people, many other sports writers who covered him have echoed that. In terms of his impact on the sport, I just remember being at his first SEC media days, which was a while ago now, I want to say 2002, 2003, before the SEC became known for winning all its national championships. At that time, it was known mostly as the conference of Albert Means and many other scandals that had happened in that conference. It was probate, NCA probation and committee on infractions. That was, that was the main thing associated with the SEC then, and his number one mission was to change that, and he certainly did. They enjoyed an unprecedented run of success in football. They started the SEC Network and many other things. But, of course, because of my perspective on things, like I said, with the playoff, I mean, he first started pushing for a – it wasn't called a playoff then. It was called a plus one. He first started calling for a four-team system after Auburn got excluded in 2004. And I remember writing a really long feature on this in 2007 where we were we talked a ton about his – proposal and his thinking behind it. And then the following spring at their annual BCS meetings, the other commissioners shot it down. Like they barely even, he had this whole presentation ready and they just shot it down almost without thought. And I remember him being really dejected, but to his credit, he stayed on it and uh, and we ended up having the system that we do now. And I, to me, that will be his legacy is that we moved into the playoff model and he was the um, driving force behind it. Yeah, and how he did business, I think, was just very different in terms of, you know, how he got people to build consensus and work together. And I think that was because of the humanity, something that just the personality and the personal touch that he he had, and it affected people. And I think that will that will be a lasting legacy. And I don't think, no matter how much people can be around him, I'm not sure some of those traits are the things you can pick up. You can try to be better at that, but I just think he had a natural gift for it, and that was rare, and he will be missed. So, you know, we'll, we'll think about him a lot going forward, I'm sure, especially, you know, as I said, that, that it just means more legacy, or it just means more motto at the SEC can be off-putting for a lot of people who are not SEC fans, and I just don't think it was very, I think if you met Mike Slive, he'd be a hard guy not to like. In the SEC... We have Joe Burrow, the Ohio State grad transfer, now going to LSU. I think the last time, well, last week, last that podcast was all about your your hiring, but the one before that, we talked about him and possible destinations, and LSU was the first one you mentioned. People have asked me this question, I'll ask you, do you come that opening Sunday night against Miami, do you expect him to be their quarterback? I do. I'd be surprised if he was not the starter. Everything you've heard, and including what this staff, the LSU staff, heard from the Ohio State staff, was how football smart he was. They raved about his character. When he went in there on his on his visit, he spent three days there, and a big chunk of it was going through film and showing them, you know, kind of what he knows. And I think the other quarterbacks they have, quite honestly, are young and too green and and not ready. And now look, this kid has a lot of physical tools. And checks a lot of boxes. The one box he doesn't check is he has never really played. He has minimal game experience. He's thrown less than I think he's thrown you know thirty passes or so. And it's a team that has a good group of receivers. They're talented, 
they have a I think they'll have a, they'll be good on both lines, but there is no Darius Geis or Daryl Williams to lean on, and the schedule's rough. So I think he probably will is their best option at this point. But you know, I still maybe this is a team that I looked at as probably a seven and five kind of team. Maybe they're an eight and four team with Joe Burrow. I'm not sure it's a it's a huge jump, but we'll see. We don't we don't really know until he plays. As I as I wrote about last week, when you know, we talk grad transfers. We get kind of far down the road on this because they're the only recruiting action that's out there. It's very possible he could be Ryan Finley or Nathan Peterman, who who didn't play much and then flourish when they got the chance. Or he could be Max Brown, who is a high-profile recruit at USC and transferred and really was underwhelming when he played at Pitt. I mean, there's probably as many examples of guys who kind of underwhelm when they got the chance as there are of the Ryan Finley-Peterman. Probably more. I mean, I think it's more the exception than the rule that the touted grad transfer quarterback comes in and, and is a star. I mean, remember Malik Zaire last year and all the time that was spent debating where he was going to go, and then he picks Florida, and they had to wait for them to change a rule just for him to be able to play. So, I, I think being a star is, I, I don't know if LSU is expecting him to be a star. I think it, they're expecting, if, if you're a good quarterback, uh, I think that would be an upgrade from what they've had, quite honestly, f- there for a while. Well, you've always been a realist about their prospects for this year, and you just said you thought maybe they'd be 7-5, and five, now they'll go 8-4. and four. I think their fans would consider either of those results a big disappointment. This is a program that expects to contend in the SEC every year. So I worry a bit for Coach O if that's really what's going to happen. It's you too, though. I mean, you'd have to be a fool to go, okay, in two years it didn't, you know, you didn't get us... You know, they won nine games last year. You know, that wasn't a great year, but it wasn't a disaster. And if they, you know, it's year two. I don't think anybody makes personnel moves on a coaching staff in two years. Now, that's not necessarily how they look. I mean, it's different when. Yeah, but can you name me a place that's fired a coach after two years? No, I think it would be. I I don't expect him to be. To be clear, I don't think he'll be fired after two years. I think that'd be stupid. But there'll be a lot of pressure. I think there'll be a lot of pressure. A lot of people thinking because a lot of people thought he never should have gotten the job in the first place is what it comes down to. A lot of people, LSU fans had basically made it Jimbo Fisher or Tom Herman or bust. And they didn't get either of the first two. And this was considered a disappointment. But I think the thing that's being overlooked is stuff that's not that was that happened before he even got the job. I mean, the, the, the way the whole Les Miles situation was bungled where it almost happened, and then it didn't happen, but it happened a month into the next season. I mean, the effects that has on recruiting. You're not going to sign the, the loaded top five national classes like they used to do when a whole recruiting cycle goes by and the coach is in limbo. So, I mean, it's, he needs this time to be able to get the roster back up to what people are used to there, and I just don't know how many people on the outside understand that. Yeah, well, look, I mean, if, if Darius Geis is there this year, I would say maybe expectations would, would be more in line maybe with what LSU, but that's not the case. I mean, they just don't have anybody at that level. And if you can't really run the football in the SEC, and I'm not saying they, they won't be able to at all because I think their whole line will be better, but I just think that, you know, it's such an uphill climb, and that's what I think you're getting into. And uh, so we'll see. I think they're, I actually think they're a year away from, from, uh, being a legit top 10 team, but we'll see a lot can happen between now and then. So another quarterback transfer, Hunter Johnson, just a year ago was the big five-star quarterback recruit for Clemson. A year later, he's transferring after 
it became apparent that another five-star guy, Trevor Lawrence, is the future at Clemson, whether that's this year or next. So he was looking at being the third-string quarterback this year and then possibly back. So anyway, he's transferring. And there's been a lot of stats going around that are pretty eye-opening. Eight of the last 11 five-star QBs have transferred. Nine of the last 15. I don't think it's any secret that guys want to start early. And if they don't, they transfer. But I don't know that we've seen numbers quite like this. You wrote a whole book about the culture of QB recruiting. Why do you? Why is this happening? I think it comes back to expectations and the hype around them. You can only play one. I mean, you can have multiple running backs, but you can't have multiple quarterbacks to go in into a situation and expect it. And that number, like, because I had a stat, I don't want to say a similar stat because it was a different year, but in the beginning of my book about that of the guys who transferred, it was one of the classes, it was a class Devin Gardner was in. And Devin Gardner wasn't a great quarterback at Michigan, but he was actually one of the more successful ones in that class. It was a, it was a dreadful qu- class of quarterbacks. The 8-for-11, I wondered about, initially the first stat I saw was a 5-for-8 in the last three years, and Josh Rosen was one of the three who stayed. And Paul Meyerberg from the USA Today was the one who tweeted it out, and I looked at that, and I was like, you know what, this could actually be 6-of-9, because Ricky Town was a five-star quarterback when he committed to USC, when he decommitted from Alabama to go there. I mean, now he wasn't a five-star at the final rankings, but for most of his recruitment, he was. And what I'm getting at is... I think sometimes when a kid is labeled a five-star, there's added burden, there's added expectations, there's also probably, a, and I'm not saying it was in Ricky Towns' case per se, but there's also added there's added sense of entitlement that comes with that five-star label. And so guys are less, less patient. Ricky Town transferred before USC even played a game. I mean, he was here, he was at USC. Sam Darnold, who I think when he committed was actually a three-star guy and then got bumped up to a four-star guy. Sam Darnold... Obviously showed a lot of promise. Ricky Town struggled. Ricky Town went to Arkansas, transferred to Arkansas. Then he ended up transferring to a junior college. Then they ended up transferring. Now he's at Pitt. And I just think you see a lot of guys who it's like, hey, if it doesn't work out, I'm not saying they will stick around and be four years of backup. But I just think we see it more. And it's, it, again, this is kind of why I wrote that, part of why I wrote that QB book. It's just because it's very fickle on the quarterback evaluation. A lot of times these guys are evaluated as, hey, they look good when they're in seven on seven or when they're throwing in shorts and a t-shirt. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, it, it's it's tricky because Jacob Eason was a five-star guy at Georgia. Maybe he'll turn out to be a really good quarterback now that he's up at Washington starting next year, but who knows? I mean, it's a it's not it's it's so such a fickle process that I just think we can't the NFL gets it wrong and they have way more data and way more intel than the college guys do. When I wrote about this whole trans quarterback transfer, I was gonna say phenomenon, but I kind of hate that word. When I did this story for Fox a couple years ago, and I found that it was fifty percent, not just five stars, three three stars and up, fifty percent don't finish at the school they signed with. And that's just a lot different than an earlier era when, I mean, I can remember when Florida State and Miami were always starting fourth and fifth year guys. Like, it was just, that was just the way it worked. You, you worked your way up. And that just doesn't happen anymore for the most part. And so when I talk to many of the same people that are in your book, right, who are part of that Elite 11 culture, say, listen, these guys 
they, they get to know each other when they're sophomores in high school and they follow each other's careers and they're on social media and there's an inevitable comparing yourself with your peers and you see that this guy's starting as a freshman and this guy's starting as a freshman and it's not happening for you yet so I'm up, I'm gone. I'm going to go, go somewhere else where I can. I think that plays a big part in this. Oh, I, I certainly think it does. I, in, that entitlement business and the fishbowl quality of it. Yeah. I don't think it's going to get any better, I just think. And that's not a knock on the people who do the evaluations. It's just a functional reality of what we're dealing with right now. I don't think it's about guys being not evaluated, right? I mean, that happens at every position. It's just supply and demand. And especially because if, you, if really, if you're a five-star quarterback and your whole number one priority is going somewhere where you're going to start right away, then I would go sign with Iowa State. Like, I go sign somewhere where there's no question you're going to win the quarterback job. But they also want to win national championships and be on TV. And so they all sign with the same small pool of schools. And, you know, Justin Fields goes and signs at Georgia, even though, you know, at the time he committed, Jacob Eason was there. And then Jake Fromm is still there. And Trevor Lawrence goes to Clemson when, when Hunter... They just, they just go in with the attitude they're going to win the job over the other guy. So it's just... There's only one spot, and these these schools are now starting to. I remember when when Colt McCoy became Texas's quarterback as a freshman. I remember those next couple years, Mac Brown saying like it was really hard for them to sign a recruit a quarterback because they didn't want to come in and have to sit for several years. Well, Derek Gilbert was a highly recruited guy, and they signed him, but not until McCoy was going into his senior year. Hmm. I mean. Like it used to be that if that was the downside of getting a, you know, having a, a likely three or four year starters that nobody wanted to come there. That's not the case anymore. They still want to come there. They just don't want to stay there if they don't win the job. And so it makes recruiting of that position even more complicated. You don't know who's, I mean, that was the downfall in some ways of Kevin Sumlin. Like he thought he had his quarterback room set for the next four years. And then both those guys, Kyle Allen and Kyle Murray transfer. And you go from having this loaded quarterback room having to start Jake Hubenak. Well, I think what, you know, I'm glad you kind of brought that up. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast, but the A&M quarterback room, I think was the biggest reason why things, things kind of backslid. And what it was, was you had a freakish talent, not maybe in just real athleticism, but just in how he played in Johnny Manziel and did things a certain way that it's almost like, don't do this. This worked for him, but whatever. And the guy underneath him was Kenny Hill who came, who is a pretty hyped recruit. And Kenny Hill picked up a lot of bad habits from Johnny. His career, at least at A&M, imploded before he went to junior college and then resurfaced and finished nicely at, at TCU. But so after that, after Johnny leaves early and Kenny Hill you know, implodes, then Kyle Allen gets there, five-star Kyle Allen, who definitely has some tools. And Kyle Allen really doesn't have anybody to learn from the right way. I mean, you need a quarterback in there who has that, and he didn't have that. And so until he got to Houston, I remember him telling me he felt like he could learn, at least from the work ethics and the things that go into it from Greg Ward, because there was nobody to, to, to pick that up when he was in College Station. And like you said, it ended up pretty bad, where both Kyler Murray and he were young and inexperienced, and neither one worked out in College Station. Then you had Hubenak, and now you have... Kellen Mond and Starkle, and you know, at least they've had some time to kind of sort some stuff out. And I, I imagine Jimbo will shepherd it along pretty, you know, better. But uh, that's how it, that's how it can work, and that's how it can 
that's how it can kind of get off track. Yeah, if he hadn't gotten Trevor Knight for that one season, it may have ended a year earlier for him. You know, that was that was a, an emergency grad transfer situation. We got a lot of emails to get to, but... So I would like to bring up a story you yes. did, which is right in the... In the, uh, I'm in the process of moving, so in full disclosure, I've not had a chance to read much or be on social media for the last, I don't know, 72 hours. But I did see Stu Mandel's top 25 coaches. Uh, I felt like somebody else did a version of this like a month ago, and you kind of just, not parroted it, but you kind of just snagged the idea. And, and, and Actually, yeah. if you want to see how these things work, it was CBS that did it. I had already written it. We were set to publish it. Then that came out, and it's like, well, maybe we better wait a couple weeks. Okay, since you're technically the boss, I guess I can't call BS on that. But uh, we will take your rankings. Do you want my gripes, or do you want me to just rattle off some of the... Uh, I'll start with what I agree with. Okay. I think the first the first four, certainly the first three, I feel like are pretty rock solid. You'd have to be somebody who hates Urban Meyer not to have him there. Nick Saban, one. Urban Meyer, two. Dabo Sweeney, three. Chris Peterson, four. I think those are all good. My first quibble, I don't know if it comes at five or I don't know if it comes at six. So you want me to say who I feel like you've slighted the most in the top ten? Sure. Who would you guess you think I slighted? I'm actually surprised that it seems like you don't think Gary Patterson should be number five. You're a huge Gary Patterson fan. I'm I'm not sure if Gary Patterson should stay at five or get bumped to six by this next coach. I'm going to guess that you think I should have Chip Kelly higher. I do, but that's that's not the one I'm bringing in. Oh, who? The one I'm bringing in is James Franklin. Ah, yes. James Franklin, who did a ridiculously good job at Vandy, considering how awful that was, and got him in the top 25. And then what he's done at Penn State, I mean, he has made Penn State nationally relevant again in a big way, and he's done it faster. I mean, those two things, I mean, I love Gary Patterson. I think he's as good a defensive coach as there is in college football, and he's been smart about what he's done on offense. But... I could make a case that he should maybe be ahead of him. At the very least, I would put him at six. So let me ask you something. What is the difference? And, and I'm not saying that's unreasonable by any means, but one of the challenges of doing a list like this is you got coaches like Saban and Meyer and Swinney who get the five-star kids and you know they're at places that are used to winning, although Dabo has obviously taken them to another level. And you got to compare them with people like, not just Chris Peterson and Gary Patterson and Mark D'Antonio, but Paul Christ or Ken Niamatololo, who, if anything, you might say, well, they're more easily identifiable as great coaches because they don't have those kind of recruits to start with. They're developing them. So that being said, what's the real difference between Chris Peterson and Gary Patterson? For me, that it's a guy who's been at multiple places and has had has had success, you know, I, I think he got Washington in the playoff in a hurry. Mm-hmm. That's not a, an insignificant thing. I mean, Sark, Sark did a nice job making Washington respectable again because they were awful before he got there. But they were kind of middling at that point. And he put them over the, hot, over, the, over the top, and I think they are built to keep winning big. So that's to me, that's the difference. Like, uh, I think if you're going to slide... James Franklin up there, I think you have to say, like to me, those two, Peterson and Patterson, actually all three of the next ones, Peterson, Patterson, and Antonio, really are of this, I mean, they may be completely different personalities, but very similar results, where you've won conference titles, and 
you know, Gary Patterson's been at one school the whole time, but it's a school that when he first got there was in Conference USA. So he is he won big in the in the Conference USA in Mountain West. Then they move up to the Big Twelve, and it hasn't missed a beat. They've won eleven games three the last four years. So I don't I don't think there's any great difference between what Peterson's accomplished at Washington and and Boise before that, and what Patterson's accomplished at TCU. And then D'Antonio is at a school that is not a blue blood and has won three Big Ten titles and wins, other than that bizarre season two years ago, wins 10 games almost every year. Yeah, look, I, like I said, I would, I would bump Chip up above those guys and or at least you know, into six. I would put Franklin above that just because I know how awful Vandy was and what he did there was pretty remarkable in the SEC, and then he goes to Penn State and he beats Ohio State and gets him into a Rose Bowl, and not, there's nothing fluky about what he did there and what he's doing. So there was one thing I was going to ask you, and I don't want to call you out on this, but you have Kirby Smart at number 10. He's been there two years. You don't even have Lincoln Riley on your list at all. He's been there one. Is it a disqualifier that one year is not enough? I mean, he, he was a... He is a great offensive play caller, a great offensive coach. He got them in the playoff. Why did you not have him? And Yeah, so that was the number one complaint. Oklahoma fans complaining that Lincoln Riley wasn't on there. I'll be honest, I never even really was a consideration for me that I was going to put him in there after one season, as great a season as that was. Only two, and you have Scott Frost. And I'm not quibbling about Scott Frost either. I think both both those guys should be there. But if you only have only them for two, you don't even have you – know, what's kind of weird is I would have thought you'd have Tom Herman on here. But you don't have him on there. It's not like he has a, a lengthy body of work. Well, I think the difference between Kirby and Scott Frost versus Lincoln Riley, and by the way, I think Lincoln Riley is a phenomenal offensive coach. I just think it's a little too soon to say what kind of a head coach he is because whereas Scott Frost came in and turned a winless team into an undefeated team. And Kirby, and Kirby, Kirby a team that was, that was consistently very good. It's in a crap division. They weren't broken. Georgia wasn't broken by any means, but they hadn't had a season like this this past one in a long time. I mean, you have to admit, Lincoln Riley was handed the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback and a ready-made program that has been dominant for 18 years. And yes, he took them to the playoff, and I'm not saying that's easy to do, but I think this is the year without Baker Mayfield, with a you know, a staff that was of his choosing rather than the one that was handed to him. After this year is when I would, okay, now let's figure out where to put him on this list. And you mentioned Tom Herman, who probably would have been on this list before if you were just doing it just off Houston. So, you know, it's just tough with these guys who haven't been a head coach for very long. It's a lot tougher to rank Kirby Smart or Lincoln Riley or Tom Herman than Mark D'Antonio. I mean, it just is. It's, it's, uh, it's an apples to oranges thing, kind of. What did you think about? What's your opinion on having Harbaugh thirteen? It's okay. Uh, it's okay for me because, like I said, some of the guys who are right above him. I don't know if I would have Mark Richt at twelve. I would have Mark Richt probably further down the list. What he's done at Miami, quite honestly, has has been, you know, a pleasant surprise. I don't know if I would have him above Harbaugh. Here are the, the me the four biggest omissions you had on the list. One is Lincoln Riley. And part of it is because I think he's just a remarkable play caller and what he's doing. The other three guys, and I'm actually surprised you didn't have any of them. Matt Campbell at Iowa State did a really good job at Toledo, has done some fantastic stuff. Last year, two top five wins at Iowa State. I thought you'd have Brian Kelly somewhere on there. And then the third one, which to me is actually the biggest head scratcher, I guess it's the fourth one, is David Cutcliffe. And I'm just going to read you something and then you can just... 
Oh, you don't have to sell me on David Cutcliffe. I, wa- I wanted to have him in there. So Duke was 4-42 four and 42 the four years before he took over. They only had three winning seasons in the previous quarter century. In the, they've had winning seasons in four of the last five years. They've had a 10-win season. They won a Coastal Division title. And by the way, when he was at Ole Miss, he had a 10-win season, which was their first 10-win season in over 30 years. One other thing, he wasn't a cheater at, at Ole Miss. And, you know, that's pretty much everybody who's won at Ole Miss on that level has had to do some, some shady business, you know, in the last long while. Back to the podcast in a second, but first, Bruce, let's talk about the world's most comfortable mattress, Lisa. Stu, it doesn't get any better. That's the best night's sleep anybody can get. So you should follow us in this regard, at least, and get your bed through Lisa. And in particular, because this offer just keeps getting better, go right now to lisa.com slash audible for $160 off. A mattress of your choosing. That is the deepest discount the company has ever offered. They've got 11,000 plus five-star reviews. Lisa Mattress is loved by 300,000 happy sleepers and counting. Their design, their mattresses are designed to provide support and pressure relief to every body type and sleeping for a deeper night's sleep. They've been starting a conversation around deeper rest. So again, go to lisa.com slash audible for $160 off mattress of your choosing. That's lisa, L-E-E-S-A dot com slash audible. Those are all guys who I strongly considered and, and would love to have in there. But if so, you said, you said Cutcliffe, Campbell, and Brian Kelly. And Lincoln Riley. And Lincoln Riley. Okay. Which four are you leaving out? I knew you were going to ask me that. I would leave out Gus at 23 or wherever, 22. Mm-hmm. I would leave out Rocky Long. I mean, these are good coaches, but you got to make some choices. And then I would either, I would probably might not have Paul Christ in there. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah. You know why? Because the coach who just got fired at Arkansas did a really good job at, at Wisconsin too. And I'm not saying he's not a really good coach. He is. Look, I'm not sure I would have Dan Mullen in there. Mm-hmm. You know, I used this Dan Mullen to you argument with Leach a while back. I mean, you have Leach at 24. What Leach has done to me is a lot more impressive than what Dan Mullen did in Starkville. Mm-hmm. And I'm, again, I'm not saying Dan Mullen's not a good coach because he's done a really good job, especially with quarterbacks. But you know how awful it was in Pullman, Washington when Leach showed up there? They had nine wins in four seasons. And he's had them in the top 25. Texas Tech has not been anywhere close to it, you know. Since since he left and you know that kind of craziness went away. Well, Leach is in my list. My yeah, Mullen, my Mullen the, argument. I mean, you really think Mike Leach is a is a worse coach than Gus Malzahn and Dan Mullen? The thing that's always bothered me about Leach, look, he, he's done a great job turning them around, and they've had look, a couple really I mean, good seasons. It's he says a lot of stupid stuff. Is that what? It no, is? it's the inconsistency. It's the beat somebody really good one week almost get shut out by Cal the next. You know, the last two years, they got to a point where they were on the brink of possibly winning the division, and then they just get destroyed by Washington and upset by teams in the bowl games. Like, it's just the consistency has always bothered me a little bit, but not enough to keep them out of the list. The well, one, the one okay, I have... Okay, go ahead. Hang on. One, let me just follow this back. You're going to bring up consistency with me on that. Well... Last year, Mississippi State drills LSU and Starkville 37-7. to 7. 
The next two weeks, they lose 31 to 3 and 49 to 10. That's inconsistency, too. That is. Look, it's all about, like, that respective to that school. And as I pointed out, Mississippi State. As a as a program in its entire history, below below five hundred winning yep. percent. What you're just down on Leach because you think he's a slob, isn't it? I no, <laughs> I I love Mike Leach. I just don't have him higher on the the one of the ones you mentioned. The one that I probably had the hardest time with was Gus Malzahn, and for the same reason. I mean, he's he's you know thirteen seconds away from winning the national title. A few years later, it's at the point where he might get fired. Then they have another big year last year. Like, you could make a re- perfectly reasonable case that he just shouldn't be in there at all. But I don't know. I mean, in, in the, he's got the, the juggernaut of the sport in his own state and in his own division. And he's managed to win one SEC title and get back to Atlanta last year. The only school other than Alabama that's won that division since LSU in 2011. So I, I think that's a pretty remarkable accomplishment that gets him into the top 25 guys who I think you have a little too low. I am biased on Kyle Whittingham just because I feel like that's the most, when you see them in person, you're like, damn, they're physical and they're, you know, they kind of have the eye test for me. I think he's too low at 21. I don't, I'm not going to crap on you for this, but I should crap on you for Bill Snyder at 20. That's kind of blasphemous, but that's self that, you know, goes without saying that was pretty much it. Oh, you know what? And Scott Frost, I think should be a lot higher. But it's only two years. Yeah, I mean, that was. How do you do that off of two years, though? I don't know. You have you have Kirby Smart number ten. Yeah, I feel like you're bank banking Kirby Smart as much for he had a huge recruiting class, and you know, in addition, I, I think know. there's a little bit of. I will admit to there being a little bit of like projecting there of like where he's going to be two, three years from now. Hey, did you? I want to ask you this one. This uh, one guy was an omission, I think, but I I was on the fence with him. Justin Fuente did a great job at Memphis, won 19 games in his last two years. He's done a pretty nice job so far at Virginia Tech. Was there much consideration for him? It's funny you say that because, yeah, there was some consideration. Virginia Tech's own football Twitter account objected to him being off of it and put up a graphic showing that he's won at least nine games four years in a row and how few coaches have done that. And yet, you'll see in a little bit, we've got a mailbag question from a disgruntled Virginia Tech fan who's not all that impressed with Justin Fuente. So... He's not there yet. I want to. We do have some questions to get to, but I want to ask you real quick about a story you did uh, that went up this morning. It was Oregon Day, I guess, at the All American. You wrote in depth about Justin Herbert and uh, Chantel Jennings, who has also covered Herbert a lot in the past. Wrote about his offensive coordinator. What did, what did we learn about that? About Herbert and about that relationship? You know, Marcus Arroyo, who's a who's a former quarterback himself, spent time in the NFL as a coordinator. Very very diligent, sharp guy. When I spent some time up there last month, you know, we did one of Justin's games. He is an outlier in so many ways. I mean, he grew up a mile away from that campus and yet they had no really minimal interest in him. And I think some of the stuff that I think a lot of people didn't know about him was he played JV football his sophomore year. And then he got hurt two games into his senior year. So you kind of see where he wouldn't get a lot of lot of buzz. On top of that, because he's a really good baseball and basketball player and was doing those things, he wasn't going to camps. He told me he'd never gone to any Oregon camp when he was a kid because he just thought, I'm a local kid. I don't it was almost like he looked in awe of the place. And so it wasn't you know, Brian Poling told me this great story. 
he's the, he's the head coach of Nevada. He and Nick Rolovich, who was his offensive coordinator at the time, they get a private plane, and it's, they never were able to get a private plane. But this time they did because they thought this, hey, we're gonna we're gonna snag a gem here from Oregon's backyard. They go to see him. They're wowed by the kid, feeling great. Pullian's like, yeah, it's date night for me and my wife. I go to the movies, and then he finds out Oregon gets wind of it. They offer the kid. He commits, and all this happened before, you know, really Nevada had a chance to catch its breath and feel good about it. So, I mean, he's very talented. Willie Taggart, who had him last year, had told me a great story about him. He said, this kid, you know, he's a 4.0 plus student in biology, really diligent, really thoughtful. But whenever he would have a bad throw in practice, he'd hang his head and get really mad at himself. And, And Taggart, who knows a bunch about quarterbacks and was a really good quarterback himself, was like, whoa, Justin, you can't do that. The, all the players see that. And so we really work with him on his leadership qualities. And I think, so building off that, what I think Marcus has, has done a really good job of and is, is working on is he's asking him to handle all the protections and things that you might see in you, you know, NFL uh, coaches would expect the quarterback to see. I think this is something else that he has brought in. And so when you look back, when they looked really bad in the bowl game against Boise State, Justin said, we weren't seeing it well they just did not handle the protections well and i think that's a big adjustment you will see i mean he's a kid whose name has come up with a lot of the mock drafts because he's as he told me he's 240 pounds now he's a 6'6 240 pound kid who's athletic and really accurate at some point and maybe not next year but maybe the year after i would not be surprised if he was a top five pick i'm really excited to see him play this season because he was off to such a great start last season and the injury and by that point, you know, by the time he came back, Oregon was pretty much <clears throat> off the radar. Ready for some mailbag questions? Let's do it. As always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Okay, this is the one I mentioned earlier from Joe, Al- Joe Taylor. Big fan of the pod. Keep up the great work. Is Justin Fuente the coach to get Virginia Tech to the next level and win an ACC title? Two years in, it seems to be closer to more of what Frank Beamer gave us for much of the 2000s with a great defense led by Bud Foster and an average offense, even with Fuente's offensive background? I think he is. I mean, I think that's a really good fit. I think they were fortunate the AD ended up, you know, has done all the right things by him, and he's had chances to leave and hasn't. So I think that is a lot of uh, good positive energy about Virginia Tech football right now. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a little too soon to... I mean, I think after the first season, everybody was all over the Justin Fuente bandwagon. They took a little bit of a step back last season, but not like disastrous by any means. So let's see what's in store this year. I know people are a little skeptical still of Josh Jackson as their quarterback. I mean, a step back with a freshman quarterback, though. Yeah, exactly. They were starting a freshman quarterback. I know that other schools started a freshman quarterback once the national championship came. wasn't quite that situation. So I don't know. I think he's a really good offensive coach. I'm frankly, I, I thought, you know, if anything was going to go wrong, it would be the other way around. But man, we've never, I mean, we've almost never seen anything quite like this, where the mainstay defensive coordinator stayed on for the next coach, and by all accounts, it's a great working relationship. So I'm, I'm bullish on them. Uh, I think right now the ACC Coastal is kind of a two-team conference. I don't see anybody there challenging Miami and Virginia Tech. So maybe we get back to when you and I first started covering the sport, there was a nice little rivalry going on between those two programs. We'll see. From Sean in Chicago, we heard all the talk about Ed Oliver his freshman year and almost nothing about him his sophomore season last year. In fact, 
I kind of forgot about him until I saw the NFL 2019 mock drafts come out. Why is that? I mean, my recollection is, first of all, he got hurt at one point in the season. But also, Houston was just more on the national radar his freshman year when they beat Oklahoma and they beat Louisville in that Thursday night game that was kind of the Ed Oliver show. So, you know, that's the problem with playing for a team in the American. Your games aren't going to be on ESPN or ABC primetime. You know, you're playing against whoever. I don't even know, SMU, whoever. Like, nobody's watching those games. Uh, and I think people just kind of lost track of them a little bit. But, but to be clear, he still had a, a great season. Probably a little bit of a step back from his freshman season. But that was mostly because of the injury. I actually did a story on him going into their bowl game. And talked to him at length, and I mean, he was pretty frustrated that he didn't get to show out that he, you know, because he didn't. I don't think he missed any games. He just played with the injury. Yeah, you know, it was him, and him at seventy-five percent is still pretty good, but not superstar. I also think after a year, he's going to be more of a focus of offensive coordinators and offensive line coaches. How do you deal with him? He did step up, and you know, look, they played a, a top twenty-five opponent in Memphis, had two and a half tackles for loss in that. They played at USF. That was a big game for them. Obviously, it was a number 21 uh, USF team that had a lot of expectations, had a couple of tackles for loss against that. When they played Navy and won that game, three and a half TFLs against them. So, I mean, he, he was a force, in, especially in the second half of the year. So I, would, uh, I think we're going to be talking a lot about him this year. Also, there was a kind of under-the-radar rules change recently that was basically the Ed Oliver rule. Like... Major Applewhite made that a cause of his last year that he was getting he was getting blocked like he's such a mobile guy that he would be you know kind of running during the play and get totally blindsided by somebody. I don't have the specifics of the rule in front of me, but it was basically kind of redefining what you can and can't do to a, as a blocker and it's totally to his advantage. All right, what else you got to do? This is from Lucas B in Charlotte, North Carolina. Big fan of the Audible and the Athletic. As a diehard Hokies alum and fan of all my life, I realize the impact Bud Foster has had on the program since he took over in 95. I was wondering how much you think Brent Venables has contributed to the overall success of Clemson since he took over in 2012. I know the recruits love Dabo, but Venables is the one controlling the monsters on the field that enroll there. Is Venables ever going to look for a head coaching job elsewhere, and if so, would Clemson be in trouble? Uh, I think he's had a huge impact, especially with getting a lot of the negative plays. Now, certainly they are loaded up front, as we've talked about before, with on the D-line. But I think he's really done a good job with that and high-pressure defense. I think we've talked about this also before. He is going to be very choosy. I remember having a pretty lengthy conversation with him a couple of winters ago. And he likes the situation. His son is going there. He's not going to just take a job to take a job. I wonder what would happen if one of his best friends, and I think it was his best friend in college, is Kirby Hocutt. They were teammates together at K-State. Kirby Hocutt, obviously the AD at Texas Tech. If he had to make a change there, would he would he really throw everything into trying to land and get Venables to work for him? I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, he's a K-State guy. Would he, would he want that job if, if Bill Snyder, uh, when, he, when he eventually steps down? I don't know. I, I think... Not every not every guy, not every person wants to be a head coach. They may think they do because it's like it's a natural progression kind of. But there are a lot of guys, especially once they get close to 50 or even north of it, 
where they're like, you know what? I don't know if this is a, this is a better thing for me. I mean, Jim Chaney and I had this conversation about he'd always wanted to be a head coach. And he kind of realized, you know what? I really don't think I do want to be a head coach. I'm much better at this. And maybe Brent Venables is more of a realist than, than some other guys in his position. I mean, the track record at this point, you know, when I was there in April and I was talking to Cleveland Farrell and Venables and, you know, how great could this defensive line be? For the three straight playoff runs and all the success they've had, those guys all say that the 2014 team, if you remember, that was the team that destroyed Oklahoma in the other Orlando Bowl game, whatever that was called at the time. Mm-hmm. But they weren't a national, they didn't play for the, you know, they weren't in the playoff contention. Florida State won the ACC that year, I believe. So, in other words, this is now at least four years of just high caliber defenses reloading, especially up front on the defensive line. It's an amazing run he's had. And when you think about how did he get to Clemson, he was basically fired at Oklahoma. I mean, he, the defense was struggling. Bob Stoops, Mike Stoops gets fired. Bob Stoops wants to bring his brother back. They tried to, they could say, oh, it'll be fine. You can stay. You'll be the Cody. But the writing was on the wall. So he got out and he went to Clemson. And, and man, what a, what a career renaissance. Yeah, I'm uh, with you. Yeah, so let's see. Oh, you know what? Let's do this one because you wrote that article about your first article for The Athletic, in fact, was the oral history of that NC State defensive line where everybody just got drafted. Stu and Bruce, there's been quite a bit written and discussed about NC State lately following the NFL draft. NC State has good facilities and a solid recruiting location, which allows them to produce NFL prospects annually. Wolfpack fans are a passionate fan base. Tailgates at Carter-Finley are as close to an SEC environment as you'll find in the ACC other than Clemson. I've never been to a game at Carter Friendly. I don't, I don't know whether that's true or not. Anyway, NC State should be in line to compete with the best in the ACC, yet they finished last in their own division more times than they finished in the top three since 2005. Has any school done less with more than the Wolfpack? Well, they went, you know, that story, the year before they, they signed, uh, a couple of months before they signed, they were 3-9. and nine. It was Dave Doran's first year. This past year with them, they won nine games. That was a big improvement. I'd seen some people going, well, it wasn't like they were that great. I mean, look, this was, as the story kind of goes into depth on, they were all developmental projects. And so it was going to be building towards 2016 uh, when they were juniors. They had the number eight defense run defense in the country. And they should have beaten... Clemson, which was the national title team, the team that ended up eventually in the national title, if their kicker hits a 33-yarder at the end of regulation, they beat Clemson. They end up losing in overtime. So, you know, you can have a lot of good pieces to everything, but to get over the top, I think you need a lot of things to, to kind of hit at the right time. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people can look and go, okay, we should be as good as Clemson. We should be as good as Florida State. I just think once you start getting into places at that level, it's really, really hard to do that consistently. It's almost like when BC, this is before like, you know, the BC Adazio kind of run. It's probably, you know, 10, 15 years ago. BC was consistently very good and they would have that one year where they would make a run at the top 10 and otherwise they'd be mostly, you know, around the top 25. I think that's a lot of programs where they can be pretty good and then there's that one year where everybody's either you know a senior or a junior, and then all of a sudden you can make a run at, at winning the conference title. Because most places are not Clemson, they're not Florida State, they're not Miami. They're more likely to trend upward, and then they're going to have that year 
look, in North Carolina, the bottom fell out on them last year. I think there are those programs that are kind of more like that, where they're going to have one really good year and one kind of a dud, and the other two years will be pretty good. And that's kind of what you can aspire to, I think. All right, finally, Bruce, we had a conversation a couple weeks ago about, because somebody asked us in the mailbag about it, about CTE and covering college football, and do you feel any guilt? Okay, two ones about this. One comes from Jeff Wynn, the head football coach at Roswell High School in Roswell, New Mexico. This is my first time emailing, but I've listened for a long time. I found it interesting, Stu, you would let your girl play soccer, but you wouldn't let your boy play football when girl soccer has a higher incidence of concussions than football. I think I did know that fact. And then Mike in Seoul, South Korea. Hey, guys, love your podcast. Please keep it up. I really enjoyed your recent discussion about CTE and player safety. One point that I think was thinking about listening was the idea you alluded to at the end, where every person, former players, media, sports officials, etc., who discusses player safety has already made a fortune off the game. I think it's easy for former players to say they won't let their kids play. They're often very wealthy, so they don't need sports to escape from a difficult socioeconomic environment. The better question is whether they themselves would do it all over again. To the first point from Jeff Lynn, you know, when I talk about player safety in football, it's not just concussions. I mean, that's obviously the one that gets the most headlines, and it's frankly the most alarming. But when you read about some of these 50, 60-year-old NFL players who can barely walk from all the, you know, it's not just concussions. It's all the injuries you sustain over the football course of a football career that then end up having a permanent effect on your health. Stop that alarms you me as much oh. as concussions. Can I stop you on that one, though? Okay. I think some of the people you're talking about and again, maybe this is an ignorant comment, but I think some of the people you're talking about who fall into the they can barely walk. They look because I remember, you know, and Matt Millen is dealing with some major health issues now beyond just the football related ones. But I remember spending a day with him and whenever he had to get up, it was an effort. It was almost like he had to rock himself up out of this couch. And there are a lot of guys who especially I know linemen whose hands look like they go the other way, you know, like they're all pointed and knuckles are pointed in different directions and fingers are all, you know, like uh, Chuck Bignerick's hand. I remember it was just a famous photo. It looks like all the fingers are just gnarled and pointed in opposite directions. But what I was going to say with that is those guys played for 20 years and, you know, there's a, it's, to me it's a big difference between that and somebody who plays high school football and hopefully didn't have any catastrophic injury but if you probably played high school football and maybe even if you played pop warner football and then we're talking about five or six years there's probably less of a chance that you're walking around like you know with major knee or back issues that would be different than somebody who had spent 20 years playing in it you know and i think that's certainly more anecdotal but i would make a distinction there if somebody played three years I don't think they're, unless they had some catastrophic injury, I don't think their health is diminished. Whereas if you see somebody lumbering around when they're 55 or 60, there's a good chance the reason why they're lumbering around for 50, you know, over 55 is because they're, they probably haven't taken care of their body and maybe their diet is horrible. They don't exercise or that could be related to obesity issues as much as anything else. And then Bruce, what about what Mike brought up about how everybody who's commenting on concussions is in a much different economic position than the athletes who will be most affected by it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I tried to get into that a little bit from my own talking through it on that podcast episode a couple weeks ago where I said it feels a little bit disingenuous 
for me to say if I didn't want my son to play football and yet I'm making my livelihood off the business. And I do feel like there's an awkwardness to that. I mean, as I said, I, I am not at the position where I would say I didn't want my son to play. And it's not necessarily for that reason. But if I was that uncomfortable with football, I don't know if I, you know, and you referenced this, I think, when I brought that up a couple of weeks ago. You referenced Ed Cunningham not doing t- games anymore for TV because of his position in it. And I think it's a very personal topic. And so what he's bringing up now is a fair concern to say, okay, well, who are the people who are most uncomfortable with it and how do they feel? Because they're the ones who are going to have to live with, with the repercussions. And obviously, you know, everybody kind of forecasts that, but I sure hope it doesn't reach the point where the only people playing football are kids who feel like they have no other choice. You know, that would, that would not be, that would just not be good for our society. People should play football because they want to play football and, and it should be, and it should be diverse and it shouldn't be people from all backgrounds should get to play. It shouldn't be what he's basically forecasting there, but I'm not naive. I realize that could happen if, significant changes aren't made. So like we said last time, there's a lot riding on still what, like what are those significant changes? Well, like what I talked about last time, there's a lot riding on researchers and scientists and doctors and equipment makers just to make this a safer sport. If it's even possible, because I don't think we can just keep burying our heads in the sand saying, well, well, they'll figure something out. No, like we need real solutions. I don't know if you're going to get real solutions, to be honest. I really don't think you will. People are working really, really hard to to hopefully find those solutions. I don't think um, think, it's not going to be for lack of effort. I think they can make the game a little safer, but uh, inherently it is a collision sport. I just don't think you can, you know, take, you you could probably reduce the risk to injury somewhat, but, you know, short of it, Taking turning it into flag football or or something that the game just isn't right now. I'm not sure you can take the risks down that dramatically. You're never going to eliminate them, but hopefully you can reduce them. Just like as technology evolves, we make cars safer. We make you know many elements of life safer. We we uh, develop drugs that help combat diseases, but we still have diseases. So never going to be perfect and there is always going to be a risk to playing football and I think people are well aware of that but if you want to save this sport if you don't want to have it go extinct eventually or go the way of boxing there needs to be we need to see some 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 tangible signs very soon that injury rates and concussion rates are going down I would actually say that I don't know about concussions but like other injuries ACLs just injuries that cause guys to miss time it's probably getting worse because the season's getting longer and rosters are getting thinner. That's why the coaches want to pass this rule about the seemingly no-brainer rule that is stalled right now about you can play four games without burning your red shirt because they want to... because this is happening because their whole position group's getting wiped out. Some of the ACL issues, Stu, though, could have been caused by the, the artificial turf that used to be really horrible in the 80s. And that was an issue. I mean, but it's so gotten better. I mean, we have world class turf, and people are still tearing their ACLs. Yeah, again, I mean, I think that there is an element that you, as you, I think you've been saying, you're not going to be able to get rid of it. No, and I feel like it's 
this is still pretty anecdotal, but it's just when you have athletes are bigger, they're faster. I mean, the, the bigger part is no doubt they are much bigger now than they were 20, 40, you know, 50 years ago. And they're, the collisions are more, more just explosive. And that is going to, I just don't think unless you get away from actually being a collision contact sport, you're going to have a high number of injuries. And unfortunately, you're going to have some catastrophic injuries that are going to go with it as well. Right. Okay, I don't have a great way to wrap after that. But as always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We always appreciate you listening. You can rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other place where you get podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and help get the word out. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's. We'd also like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible, where you get a 25% discount and a seven-day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time. Talk about it for years. Ah, yeah. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.